choir. I tell you, they're uh, going on a mystery trip after Christmas, <laughs> and I know where they're going. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you what, it's going to be a great trip. In fact, it's so good, I invited myself along as a sponsor. <laughs> and I accepted my invitation uh, because there's some fun stuff, right, Joel? And uh, Joel and Joe went down uh, this week to where we're doing mission tour. Do they know about all that? Uh, going down to Florida to suffer for Jesus on a mission tour. And, uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's going to be a great tour. The church that they're going to work with this summer has uh, just been an explosive church and uh, great opportunities for our students, and I'm excited about what the Lord's doing with them. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to look at part 2 of relationships in a biblically authentic church. Now, last week we looked at uh, the first three groups that Paul dealt with in chapter 5. Now he comes and deals with five groups in chapter 6. He's applying the truth of the Word of God. Uh, I'm always amazed when somebody says, I wish the Bible were relevant. <laughs> the Bible is very relevant, and it is relevant because it is revealed. We are the ones who are irrelevant if we do not live our lives according to the revealed will and word of God. And so Paul is writing and addressing issues that a church has to deal with, a pastor or lay leaders or the church in general has to deal with, and he's dealing with these in these chapters, very practical applications of the word of God. Now, this is important stuff, and it doesn't seem like it's important. I mean, if you, you know, if you announce on Sunday morning, which I have, you know, that, boy, tonight we're going to look at what God's Word says about uh, helping widows and what God's Word says about the rich and what God's Word says about the poor, that's not going to draw the kind of crowd that if you said, we're going to find out who the fourth horseman is in the book of Revelation, that will get a whole lot bigger crowd. But the reality of it is, day in and day out, what Paul says in these chapters is more important to us than who the fourth horseman is because we're not going to have any control over that anyway. We do have control over this, over how we act and react in our relationships to one another. In fact, I think the reason that the Word of God includes practical application is so that we will not respond to issues emotionally, but we will respond to issues biblically. That we will not react to situations in the life of the church based on guilt, but we will react to situations based on the grace of God and the Word of God. And so I want us to begin reading in chapter 6 and verse 1. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but let them serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. Now, verse 1, he deals with unbelievers. In verse 2, he's dealing with those who worked for believers. You have to understand that in that culture, there were 50 to 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. These people, some of them worked for people who were believers. Some worked for people who were unbelievers. And in both cases, 
the danger was of abusing their newfound freedom in Christ and making spiritual excuses to disobey. And so what Paul is writing here is to tell them that spiritual freedom does not change social status. Now, you can apply it to masters and slaves, you can apply it to employees and employers. That is more relevant to the culture in which we live. It's always kind of bothered me that the Bible, uh, that Jesus didn't address the issue of slavery because he never did. Paul really did not address that issue. And as I began to study, why does it not do that? Because I've heard the Bible used, and I'm a Civil War minor in history, and I've heard the Bible used, and I've seen textbooks written to defend slavery based on the Bible. You can't do that. Nor can you defend the abolition of it based on the Bible. You can't do that. What the Bible deals with is, is not institutions. The Bible deals with individuals. The Bible didn't come. Jesus didn't come to... To, to give us new laws, he came to give us new lives. Now, as a result of new lives and changed individuals, institutions have to change. Does that make sense? When you and I are set free by Jesus Christ, then we understand that in Christ there are no slave or free, no Jew or Gentile, no black or white. The only thing that matters is people are either in Christ or outside of Christ. That is the distinction of the Word of God. The Word of God doesn't get into social issues as much as it gets into spiritual issues. It's not about establishing a moral environment as much as it is a righteous life. And I tell you, when you and I walk according to the Word of God, it changes our opinions and our ideas about whatever institutions and whatever is going on in our culture. It is changed because Christ changes it. Now, I think in your notes, let me look in the front here. Yeah, there's a whole list of uh, uh, in ancient uh, Near East about how slaves were acquired, prisoners of war. Uh, these would be soldiers that had been captured by purchase. Some, were, some sold themselves into slavery. Uh, some were sold to pay debts. Slaves were received as gifts or inherited, or others were born as slaves. There's a whole list of things uh, if you want to study this. But what I want to deal with is the two things that Paul deals with. First of all, he says, some of you are slaves of unbelievers. Now, let's just bring this up to 1997. Some of you work for unbelievers. What Paul is saying here is give honor to your master. Give honor to your boss. Give honor to your supervisor. Notice that he uses the phrase, worthy of honor. It is the same phrase that he used in chapter 5, verse 3, about widows. And the same phrase that he used in chapter 5, verse 17, about elders. Paul's concern was that the cause of Christ not be spoken against by how we act. Now, there's a quote from R.H. Linsky. It says, if a Christian slave dishonored his master in any way by disobedience, by acting disrespectfully, by speaking shamefully of his master, the worst consequence would not be the beating he would receive, but the curses he would cause his master to hurl at his miserable slave's God, his religion and the teaching he had embraced. And so what Paul is saying is, those of you that work for unbelievers, don't give them any reason to curse God. Then he talks about slaves of believers in verse 2. Now, they could have believed that because their masters were Christians, that they had special privileges. 
But you see, spiritual equality has nothing to do with social responsibilities. Just because you and I are equal spiritually doesn't mean that if you go to church with a person who is your boss that you can take advantage of that boss because they're your fellow church member. In fact, what was happening in the New Testament church was there were slaves who were pastors and slaves who were deacons and people were coming to Christ and coming into the church and all of a sudden the masters were finding out that their elder or their pastor was somebody who was a slave to them. <laughs> How'd you like that change of environment? You know, all of a sudden, somebody that you've been telling what to do, you've been saved, now he tells you what God says you're supposed to do. What Paul is saying here is he's talking about those who have believers and they're related to believers. Don't think that you're going to get special favors. And one of the dangers that happens in the Christian community is is if we have a Christian boss and we're Christians, we think he's supposed to cut us a deal, treat us a little better, make less demands on us than he does on unbelievers, and you know what happens? The unbelievers hate you for it. And they don't want anything to do with Jesus because they see that you shaved the corners off because you got a little inside track deal going on as believers. I, I'm of this opinion. If you're a Christian and you're an employee, you better do your best and you better do it all the time so that lost people don't speak ill of you because you're lazy or because you don't want to work or because you're not willing to give your best. The Christians ought to be the ones that give the best. It is, it is a blasphemy to the name of Jesus Christ when I think about the fact that sometimes the world looks at Christians as employees and they speak ill of us because we don't work the hardest. We should have the best work ethic. We should work the hardest. We should be the ones that set the standards. We should be the best employees, and we don't hide behind, well, you know, I was late for work today because I was spending time with God. Well, get up earlier and spend time with God and be on time for work. Don't use God as an excuse for incompetence. Sanctified incompetence is still incompetence. I mean, you can pray over it all you want to, but if you're not competent, you're not going just because you prayed about it, doesn't, it's not going to change anything. And you and I need to understand that there's a relationship here that he's trying to build up. And what he's saying is serve them all the more. If you are a member of this church and you work for a member of this church, you better make sure that you're working harder than somebody who's a member of another church or somebody who's lost so that nobody points a finger at you and says, see, see, he showed him favoritism. He shows her favoritism. They get by with stuff I would never get by with. Don't ever let the world accuse us of that kind of behavior. Then he goes to false teachers in verses 3 through 5. Now in verse 3, he talks about the method. This is not in the outline. I'm just going to give you three key words here. Uh, in verse 3, he talks about the method. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. Now he's talking about the method there of false teachers. In verse 4, he talks about the motives of the false teachers. He is conceited and understands nothing. Now he's talked about his method. He's talked about his motives. Now he picks up with the marks, the identifying marks of a false teacher. He says, but he has a morbid interest 
in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, three characteristics of false teachers. First of all, they are characterized by deviating from sound doctrine. They deviate from sound doctrine. Secondly, false teachers divide the church. A false teacher will divide the church. They'll get inside and they'll wrangle over words and they'll divide the church. Thirdly, they are driven by a love for money. Now these false teachers in chapter 6 are different than the ones that he mentions in chapter 4. In chapter 4, those are evil. In chapter 6, these are not as much evil as they are arrogant. They are arrogant people who believe that they can push their system and their ideas on other people, and that's what divides the church, and that's what drives them is a love of money because they feel like if I can sell this, I can make a lot of money doing it. Now, there's a twofold test for false teaching. Number one, what is its source? What is its source? The goal of teaching is not to create the message. The goal of teaching is to be faithful to the Scripture. If somebody comes along and says, well, I've got a new idea, then it's not of God. I mean, if I think I've thought of something <laughs> for the first time in 2,000 years of Christian history, it's probably not of God. If Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Wesley and Charles Spurgeon didn't think of it, then I'm probably, it's not going to just hit me one day. I mean, I was raised in Mississippi. It's just not going to come to me one day. What's the source of it? We are not the creators of the message. We are the communicators of the message. You, you see, the source is that we are to be stewards of the mysteries of God. Second question, second test of a false teacher is what is its effect? What is its effect? When this is taught, does it move people toward godliness? Does it move people toward confusion? Do they speculate or are they into fascination and feelings and emotions? What's the source? Does it feed the mind? Does it quicken the conscience? Does it move people toward godliness? What's the source? What's the effect? Now, false teaching always is symptomatic of a moral problem. As you study the history of false teaching in the church, you will find that there is a moral problem. Now, the one that Paul mentions here is the love of money that godliness is great gain. False teaching always focuses on the teacher, not on the truth. You hear somebody say, the only person you can listen to is me, the only person you should follow is me, the only things you can read are what I give you, then you watch it, that person's a false teacher. They're focusing on themselves and not on Jesus Christ. Another characteristic of false teaching is that it builds false pride and battle lines. Now, this is not in your notes. I'm just giving you stuff free, okay? This <laughs> it stirs up strife. It pits people against one another. And so what Paul uses as an illustration here is godliness is great gain. That's a sign of false teaching. Now, this may come as a shock to you, but there are some people in the ministry for money There's a particular dominant television 
preacher who lives in Orlando and has a really bad hairstyle. He sews the emblem of his church into his lapels with the same thread so that he can take his suits off as required clothing, his $1,000 handmade suits. He owns title deed to every building and every piece of furniture in that church. If he leaves, the church has to leave, he gets to stay because he owns it lock, stock, and barrel. Now, just my humble and accurate opinion, which I highly respect, that brother's in it for the money. You know, I don't need title deed to this church. In fact, if I, if I get it, I've got to take it out of the hands of Jesus Christ to get it. It's his church. You know, if I've got to sew something on my clothes so that I can take it off my income tax, I'm more worried about money than I am about preaching the gospel. There are people in the ministry for money. And that's why many of them will not take their books and be accountable to the evangelical account, uh, accounting firms that we have all over this country for ministries because they don't want to have to answer to anybody for what they do. They don't want to have to answer for how they spend money. Now, I've spent enough time on that, but I just want you to understand something. Not everybody that asks you for money in the name of God is of God. Don't give money to people just because they attach Jesus to their ministry. There are a lot of frauds, there are a lot of crooks, there are a lot of people out there, and you have to judge them by Scripture, not by the stories they tell, not by the tears they cry, not by the emotions that they work up, not by the supposed testimonies that they give. You judge them by the validity of the Word of God. That's how you decide if something's real. And they feed off people who are gullible. They believe that godliness is great gain. Now, the next thing he goes to, it's interesting that he comes out of godliness as great gain to verse 6, and he begins to uh, go to the Christian poor. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pain. Now in verses 7 and 8, he talks about the contented, those people who are contented. In verses 9 and 10, he talks about the covetous, the covetous. Two groups of people as he deals with the Christian poor. Some are contented, some are covetous. Now, let me, let me make an application here. The reason that the lottery system is so successful is because it appeals to poor people that by investing a buck here or there, they're going to get rich. It feeds off people who are not content and who want to get something for nothing, and they want to grab hold of something, and they think, and I have watched these people walk into stores and buy lottery tickets and not even have bread and milk to put on their table. You know what they're doing? They're saying we're covetous. 
We just want to win a bunch of money. We just want to get a bunch of stuff. And it is an evil system that plays on people who are poor. The majority of people who play the lottery are poor people. And many of them use money they don't have to buy tickets that they're never going to be able to cash in. Now, just as a side joke, I had to read, I was supposed to read at the convention, the motion on Baptist opposition to uh, uh, Keno games and the cash three stuff and, and all that kind of stuff. And so I, I went to one of these guys. I always love to do this. We, you know, you always got these guys. And we had this real serious preacher on the platform. He's, he, he stands like this all the time. He just, he's spiritual. I know he is. He's just, because he looks like it. He's just spiritual. You know, so we're supposed to read this, and, I, and I'm on the resolutions committee, so I'm supposed to read the resolution of Baptist opposing lottery and gambling and all of that. So I just decided, you know, it's been a long day. We've been here all day long. I mean, it's been going on. I mean, I was in a resolutions committee meeting until midnight on Monday night, get up and have another meeting at 7.30 on Monday morning. I'm tired. I want to just have a little laugh. So I walk over to the guy, and I just say, excuse me, but... Uh, would it be all right before I read this resolution on gambling if I ask anybody if they've got the cash three number for tonight? <laughs> no, that wouldn't be appropriate. <laughs> I said, but I'll tithe it. But uh, No, I didn't. I didn't say that. Four dangers of covetousness. Number one, Wealth doesn't bring contentment, verse 6. Famous statement of John Rockefeller, how much money does it take to be content? He said, just a little more. <laughs> John Rockefeller wasn't content. Nobody can be content. Wealth doesn't bring contentment. Verse 7, wealth doesn't last. Number 4, wealth can lead to sin and spiritual failure, verses 9 and 10. Now notice, it is not money, but the love of money that's the problem. You know who the most materialistic people are in our culture? Middle-class people. Folks like us. You know why I know that? Because we want to drive a better car than we can afford. We want to live in a bigger house than we need. We buy more clothes than we can ever possibly wear. And we try to impress people with what we do with our money. You know why? because we want to help people understand how well off we are. And really, in reality, we're in debt. We're up to our ears in it because we're trying to impress people. That's not godliness, which leads to contentment. That's materialism. And the sad truth of the matter is, folks, we know the price of everything and the value of nothing. We know what everything costs, but do we know what the real values of life are? What difference does it make if we give our kids great stuff and we don't give them great values? What difference if they've got all kinds of things that they can look at, but they don't have love from us? I just made the list of three things money can't buy. <laughs> money cannot buy Donald Trump good hair. We saw him in New York. That boy's got ugly hair. I'm just going to tell you. I don't know who his advisors are, but somebody tells, needs to tell the man to get some help. Secondly, money can't buy Michael Jackson love. 
It can buy him a baby, but it can't buy him love. And money can't buy Michael Jordan eternal life. He may go down as the richest athlete that ever lived, but without Jesus, he's just going to go to hell. You see, money can't buy you looks. Money can't buy you happiness. Money can't buy you life. Those are the issues. The Greeks define contentment as self-sufficiency that leads to independence. Paul would define contentment as Christ-sufficiency that frees you from the cares of the world. Notice a quote by Henry David Thoreau, a great quote. A man is wealthy in proportion to the number of things he can afford to do without. Not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. You see, how we use our stuff tells us whether or not we have an eternal perspective. Number four, the man of God. Verse 11 there are four admonitions here, and I'll just give them to you as I read the Scripture. Verse 11, the first one is flee. But flee from these things, you man of God. And number two, follow. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Verse 12 is the third one, fight. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, and then number four, finish, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice he calls Timothy a man of God. This was an Old Testament title of honor. It was given to David, it was given to Samuel, to Moses, to Elisha, and Elijah. Now, I, I think what Paul's saying here when he says, flee, follow, fight, and finish, he's saying, you don't have forever to get this done. Whatever you're going to do for God, you've got to do it now. You do not have forever to pull this off. And what he's writing about, he's writing what we are supposed to do as godly people in light of the second coming. You know, we've kind of forgotten about the second coming. I mean, back in the 60s, you know, when Hal Lindsey wrote Late Great Planet Earth and, and, and all that, and people got interested in the second coming and, you know, what's this and what are all these symbols and everybody want to... Well, we're, we're, we're really not into the second coming much. And, and, and the danger is we don't live in the light of the second coming. You know, he really is going to come back. Whether we live in that light or not. Whether you understand it all or not, he's not sitting there saying, well, I've got to wait until those folks understand everything before I can come back. One day, he's going to split the sky and come back, and it's going to be over. And Paul is saying to Timothy, in light of the second coming, live your life that you can flee from things that you're supposed to flee from, follow the things that you're supposed to follow, fight the good fight, and finish the course. Now, what, would, what do we need to give us perspective in ministry? Two things. Number one, the presence of God. The presence of God. And number two, the coming of Christ. If you can keep in focus the presence of God and the coming of Christ, it will give you a perspective on ministry and on life. I've just got a feeling that, you know, this is just my hunch, that the Lord may come back one day and see all that he gave us and all the opportunities 
that we had and all the things and resources we were given. And, and he must want to look at us and say, you know, what in the world were y'all doing while I was gone? Because you see, we're losing the world. We're not winning the world. There are all kinds of cult groups with phenomenal growth rates and Christianity is taking a backward slide. Why? Because we've forgotten to live in the presence of God and the coming of Christ, that there's going to come a day when there are no more opportunities. That's why we give. That's why we go. That's why we do what we do, because we have to finish what God started, and he's called on us to finish it. Now, what do we need to stay motivated? Well, he lists those for us in verses 13 through 16. First of all, we need the example of Christ Remember the example of Christ before Pilate who testified the good confession. Number two, we stay motivated when we think about the appearance of Christ at his return. Now what that does, the appearance of Christ keeps us from being distracted and it keeps our ministries from getting derailed. He keeps us from personally being distracted and it keeps our ministries from being derailed if we remember the appearance of Christ. And then thirdly, he says the glory of Christ. What motivates us is the glory of Christ, that we may keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he comes in verses 17 through 19 to the Christian rich. He's talked about the poor, now he's going to talk about the rich. And by the way, wealth and poverty are relative terms. The person in this room with the lowest income is rich by the standards of three-fourths of the world. I mean, we have much compared to most of the world. I, I watched just a news clip. Any of you see that news clip of those children in those Russian orphanages? I mean, just pathetic. Just skin and bone. And I mean, the, the poorest of us has far more than those children can ever hope to have. Now, what he says here, he, he doesn't tell the rich to divest themselves of riches. That's communism. That's socialism. He tells them to invest in spiritual things. That when God blesses us with financial means, that we are not to divest ourselves of it, but we're to invest in spiritual things. And so there is a negative instruction in verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Then there are positive instructions. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Verse 18, there is a sense of responsibility. A sense of responsibility. Paul is saying if you are rich, you have a responsibility. In verse 19, he tells us there is a sense of proportion. A sense of proportion. You see, the issue is not what do you have. The issue is what has you. It's not what do you have. It's what has you. What holds you, what grips you. Now, what Paul has done in 1 Timothy, and we're wrapping up, what Paul has done in 1 Timothy is he's talked about the power of God to touch a life and to transform people. He's talked about the church. He's talked about employees and employers. He's talked about the rich, the poor, about pastors, about lay leaders, about widows. He's talked about every gamut of a church congregation. 
He's told us these are the ways that you know that you have a biblically authentic church because you've been touched and it transforms the way that you act and the way that you live toward one another. Now, let me ask you something. I'm not an electrician. But if you, right now, backed into a live wire on a 220 outlet, would it affect you? Think it would? I mean, you know, two wires exposed and you just kind of brushed up against them, 220 volts, you think that would affect you? Would that get your attention? Get my attention? You've been touched by the electrifying power of the Holy Spirit of God. And when that Holy Spirit power touches you, it should get your attention. And it should transform the way you and I go about the business of the church. Because this is not our institution. It is his family. We are his children. He's our shepherd. He leads us, and he tells us how we're supposed to relate to one another. So what he's done in these six chapters, he said, if you want to be biblically authentic, this is the way you take care of the business of the church. And so the way that we evaluate ourselves is not by what any other church in town does. We evaluate ourselves by what the Word of God tells us we're supposed to be doing. And it doesn't matter if everybody's doing it or nobody's doing it. The only thing that matters is, Lord, are we doing what you have clearly revealed to us in this book that we are supposed to be doing. And 1 Timothy is a great book for us to evaluate ourselves by. Would you stand with me with heads bowed and eyes closed? Now tonight, if you're here and you're our guest and the Lord has laid on your heart that uh, this may be the church where you want to be and you want to talk to someone about what it means to be involved in this local church, then I want to encourage you during the invitation to come and to respond to God's invitation to you to be a part of a local church family, to find the accountability and the relationships that you find by being involved in a local church. You can be an attender, but you'll never get the full benefits until you're a member. So if tonight the Lord has spoken to you or in the days that have come up to this point, the Lord's spoken to you about membership in this church and I want to encourage you to find one of these ministers in just a moment and just tell them I want to talk to somebody about being a part of this church family and the rest of us I think just need to focus with the Lord tonight on what God is saying to us about how we relate to one another and how we relate to the things that we've covered tonight certainly applies to all of us about contentment applies to all of us about false teachers and about how we're supposed to treat one another, how we're supposed to view what goes on in the church. So I want to encourage you to just take some things that maybe the Lord brought to mind as you were listening to the sermon tonight and evaluate your life in light of those things. Joe's going to sing, the choir's going to sing with him, and I encourage you to come right now. I have decided to find